And I've had the privilege of calling your pastor a colleague, like Jason had mentioned. Um, he, was, he was the youth pastor at Bayside, and we had some, some fun times together, although I could honestly say, I don't think I got to know him in the years working with him as good as I did in the week that we spent in Brazil. Um, and that was, that was a lot of fun. One of the things I learned real quick is that he is really, really high energy, and I'm not. So... <laughs> So you may fall asleep. I, that's, that's all right. No place like a nap in the Lord's house. <laughs> now, now, I know most of you don't know uh, a single thing about me, so I'm going to let you in on one little secret. I'm a really, really clumsy person. It's true. Uh, as, as a baby, I had club foot. Um, so I had these, you know, these little bars that like went across my feet and, you know, my, my feet were turned inward and I'm kind of still convinced that that's, that's why, one of the reasons why I'm really clumsy. Um, you know, so from as young as I can remember, uh, I remember just always tripping over things, always falling into things, always stumbling over things. If there were, if there wasn't something to trip over in my path, then what would happen was I would still trip. I just trip over my own feet. And this, this happened all the time. Um, and I, I just, I, I'm a clumsy person. Um, in fact, I found uh, a really good app recently um, for clumsy people. It's true, I just uh, stumbled upon it. That's it, that's the one, that's the, that's the one. <laughs> that was delayed. <laughs> so, but, but I really was, I really was so clumsy. Gr growing up, it's like, I'm pretty sure I set the world record for the amount of times, the most amount of times a kid was told, watch where you're walking. Kenny, watch where you're walking. Kenny, don't bump into that person. Kenny, there's something over there. Kenny, keep an eye on where you're stepping over and over and over. You're going to get hurt if you don't watch where you're walking, Ken. So the message that I heard from my parents as a kid happens to be the same message that the Apostle Paul had for the Christians in Ephesus. See, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 20, uh, 15 to 21, which is where we're going to be looking this morning, Paul encourages the Christians there in, in Ephesus to pay attention to the way that they're walking this path of their new life in Christ. He wants them to make sure that their lives externally are an accurate representation of the utter transformation that Jesus has wrought in them internally. And so this passage in Ephesians 5 then we're going to see and discern God's very clear message for us. And it's simply this. Keep watch on the way you walk. Keep watch on the way you walk. Don't trudge along day by day without ever examining the quality of your life. Keep watch on the way you walk. Don't squander your days in pursuit of earthly things, forgetting that God has given you an entire new purpose and a new identity, and he's enlisted you in his mission of expanding his kingdom in your community. So keep watch on the way you walk. Don't try to live your life in spiritual isolation, neglecting the, the team of brothers and sisters that God has called you to huddle up with. Keep watch on the way you walk. So let's listen to God's word this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Father, we thank you for this gift of your word. Lord, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts with um, the truth, the message, the challenge, the encouragement, the exhortation that you have in store for us this morning from your word. Lord, thank you for delivering us from sin. Thank you for giving us the treasure of your scripture. And God, so we pray that you would plant your word deeply in us. God, that you would give us minds to retain information, but even more so, hearts that by your spirit um, would be transformed. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing this Huddle Up series today, and we're learning from Scripture why we're better together, why um, God has called us into the community. Because at the very moment that we were saved, at the very moment that you said yes to Jesus, God adopted you into his family, and he made you a citizen of his kingdom. So part of being placed in this new family, being made members of this new community, it comes with a whole set of family values. Now, now, now we follow the values of that family, of God's big family. We're a family of people who've get, been given freedom, freedom to love one another the way Christ loves us. We've been given freedom to serve one another, freedom to encourage one another, freedom to correct one another, and even as we're going to see today, freedom to even submit to one another. So we jumped right into the middle of Ephesians 5 uh, that we just read. Now, a quick background on Ephesians, and context is always really important when you're studying Scripture. So it's about 60 AD when the Apostle Paul wrote this, and he was under uh, house arrest in Rome, writing this letter to the Ephesians. He'd been there um, a decade or so previously. And he writes this letter to the Christians uh, who are in Ephesus. Ephesus was, is uh, modern-day Turkey. It was considered in Asia Minor. And this is one of the biggest cities at the time in the Roman Empire. It's the third biggest city, actually, in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, Alexandria, and then you had um, Ephesus. It was a, a center of commerce, very wealthy area, uh, one of the largest uh, Roman theaters at the time. And during that time, the Christians who lived in Ephesus uh, lived in a pretty dark um, and, and dangerous and, and sinful environment. There were a, a bunch of pagan temples um, there was a lot of uh, witchcraft happening. There was a lot of gambling. There was a lot of prostitution. Uh, there was um, uh, this, this kind of growing, rising persecution um, against Christians. There's kind of a lot of similarities to our society. And so under the guidance of the Spirit, then Paul takes six chapters to get this message across to the Ephesians. And if you could summarize all of the book of Ephesians in a couple words, essentially what Paul is telling them is Christian brother and sister. If you are in Christ, you are a Christian. Listen to me, he's saying. He says, you have a completely new life in Christ. Now live this life in the power of the Spirit, not in your own strength. That's Ephesians in a nutshell. So Ephesians divides nicely into two sections. Uh, there are six chapters, so Ephesians 1 through 3 is essentially the first half, the first section, and then Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is the second half. So the first half of Ephesians is all about doctrine. It's about who you are 
in Christ. And the second half of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, is all about um, the practical wisdom, how we should live now as those who are in Christ. So it's really important that you don't just jump into Ephesians 5 and, and all of a sudden look at this. Oh, this is a bunch of works that God is calling us to do. This is after we've been saved by faith. Um, and so this is, um, this is where we're jumping right in, Ephesians 5. And the message for us this morning is to keep watch on the way that you walk. Really simple. Watch your steps. Be mindful of the obstacles, the, the traps, the trip wires that the enemy is going to leave out for you. Keep watch on the way you walk. Now, if we're supposed to, watch carefully where we're going. What do we need to be looking for? What do I need to be paying attention to? Well, this passage raises four important questions that we could ask of ourselves as we, as we try to pay attention to the way we're living our lives. Questions that are going to help us determine whether or not we're actually watching our steps. And here's the first question. Question one is, am I reflecting the ways of the world or the wisdom of God? Am I reflecting the ways of the world or the wisdom of God? Of God? Does the quality of your lifestyle reflect your identity in Christ? Do you live in line with who God says you are in Christ? Look again at verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. See, see, Paul's telling us here that if we want to know how to walk well in our Christian lives, that the place that we have to start is with wisdom. We have to start with wisdom. And this isn't some weird, uh, abstract, uh, philosophical, uh, like university kind of wisdom that we seek just for wisdom's sake. Here, wisdom is simply a, a, a practical expression of our theology, of what we believe. It's a practical wisdom that results from being in the presence of the Father. It comes from seeing the world through the lens of Scripture, and it comes from centering our lives on the gospel of Christ. The best definition of biblical wisdom I've ever heard is four words. Skill in godly living. That's four words, yeah. Skill in godly living. That's what wisdom is. Best definition of wisdom. So living wisely, then, isn't something that's done haphazardly without a whole lot of thought or effort. It requires careful attention. It requires moral discernment. It requires practical skill in making good decisions. It requires prioritizing the things that God says are important instead of allowing our priorities to be dominated by the things that the world values. So we're called to live wisely in all areas of life. But there's one area in particular that Paul wants to make sure that we're applying wisdom to, and that's how we use our time. Look again, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, not like the unthinking world who gives a little to no thought of the quality of their living, but as wise, as those who demonstrate skill in living God's way. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now this phrase here where it says making the best use of the time, it's drawn from uh, the commercial language that was used during that time in the first century of, of the marketplace, right? The way uh, a merchant would, would snap up a great bargain. So, so the same way a merchant would do that, if they were in the marketplace and they saw a great deal and they, they, they'd snap it right up, believers are to snap up every opportunity for God's good purposes, for the gospel, using our everyday moments 
to live and, and extend the kingdom of God that he's called us to and that he's called us to extend into the dark world that we live in. It means, then, making the best use of time that it's not enough just to sit back and avoid the evil around you. It's not enough just to sit home uh, from the comfort of your lazy boy and curse the darkness. It means that you're going to be intentional about using the gifts God has given you in such a way that is going to further his kingdom. Why? Well, Paul tells us here, because the days are evil. Because we live in evil days, God wants us to counter the darkness with the light of Christ. Time is growing short for those who are wandering around aimlessly and, and, and completely lost in their sin. So we're to make the best use of our time by pointing others to the hope that could be theirs in Christ. And at the same time, we need to be cautious of how the world tempts us toward wasting our time on things that really don't matter. Because the fact of the matter is that we really do waste so much time on things that have no lasting meaning. Statistics reveal this and experience confirms it. There's this report put out by the uh, U.S. Uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it's called the American Time Use Survey. So this report, this survey, details how the uh, average American worker, you and me, spend their 24 hours. So here's, here are some of the stats from that. The average American full-time worker spends five hours, 16 minutes every day engaged in leisure activities. Five hours, 16 minutes every day engaged in leisure activities. Now, they, then they went and they divided up that time. So this is how the division of that time. So here, two hours and 48 minutes of that time is spent watching TV. Americans spend most of leisure time watching the TV. Two hours and 48 minutes. We spend an average of 38 minutes socializing, participating in social activities. Uh, we spend about an hour 42 minutes a day playing sports um, or uh, exercising. That sounds excessive. <laughs> we average about an hour and 11 minutes each day for eating and drinking for meals and snacks. Um, we average an hour and 36 minutes every day for grocery shopping or any other kinds of shopping. And then reading, Americans spend 10 minutes or less reading for personal interest. Now, the category for volunteering and religious activity wasn't included in leisure activity, but what that totaled was that amounted to an average of 18 minutes per day. So 18 minutes a day set aside for volunteering or religious activities, as opposed to five hours and 16 minutes of every day spent engaged in leisure activities. So as you think about the 24 hours that you have each day, you have to ask yourself, am I making the best use of my time? Am I spending more time entertaining myself with Netflix than training myself for righteousness? Am I devoting more time in the day to my physical well-being than to my spiritual well-being? Am I investing in the lives of my children or am I distracted and always missing out because I have a cell phone in front of my face the whole time. Am I neglecting the real needs of a hurting friend because I'm too caught up in my own busyness and don't have the time? Am I ignoring that, that tugging inside to join a starting point or, or a life group just because I 
don't think I can make that kind of time commitment. See, part of what it means to reflect the wisdom of God is that we'll be good stewards of the time that God has given us. And Paul reminds us that the days are evil and that the time is short, so we should make the most of every opportunity to serve Jesus, whether it's devoting time each day to commune with him in prayer or to to learn about him through the word or, or speaking about Jesus to a colleague at work or helping teach Bible in a children's class or inviting a neighbor to church. There are so many opportunities that we have every day to engage people with the gospel and there's too much at stake in this life. There's, there's too much at stake in our midst to, to sit idly by. Well, Satan does a masterful job distracting the masses, keeping them thinking about things that aren't important. So let's see every day as an opportunity to proclaim Christ. So that's the first question we ask ourselves. Am I reflecting the ways of the world or the wisdom of God? Then the second question we ask ourselves to assess our walk is this. Am I pursuing everything I want or whatever God wills? Am I pursuing everything I want or whatever God wills? See, Paul is going to tell us that there's a second way to keep watching the way you walk, which is simply by pursuing what God's will is for your life, pursuing his will. Right? Instead of living your life, chasing your own agenda, wanting to do your own things, your own way, you recognize that God has called you to the great purpose of joining him in his mission of expanding the kingdom on earth. And with evil rampant around us, and with spiritual apathy at such an all-time high, it's crucial that we, that we keep our senses awake in order to discern what God's will is. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because of the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul's saying here, don't be foolish. Don't be ignorant. Don't be like the, the fool who's careless in the way he lives and refuses to acknowledge the existence or, or sovereignty of God and his need to, to depend on Christ. Don't be like those people. Don't be like the entitled fool who wants to call his own shots and follow his own path. Instead, be wise and follow God, trusting that he's going to show you his will and the best way to do things his way. Now, sometimes when we talk about God's will, we get a little confused. We do. We, we sometimes think that God's will is this like elusive path that he hides from us, right? That we're sometimes going to miss if we're not careful enough, right? As if God's will is really contingent upon our diligence. Or when we think of God's will, we often have in mind finding God's will for a specific decision in life. But the idea here is, is more uh, general. It's more about God's intent for the way that we live every single day. Right, about being people of prayer, about being people of, of scripture who are so attuned to God and so dependent on the Holy Spirit that we just naturally live out God's will for our lives and for whatever occasion and decision we come up against. There's this uh, little book. Um, it's like a, I don't know, 50, 60 page book. It's called Found God's Will. It's a little book written by John MacArthur. Um, and th in this book, listen to what uh, MacArthur says. He says this, talking about God's will. He says, some apparently think that God's will is lost. 
To them, God must appear to be a sort of divine Easter bunny who has stashed his will like eggs somewhere out of sight and sent us running through life trying to find it. And he's up there saying, you're getting warmer. Others offer the suggestion that God's will is to be found through a dramatic experience. Running down the street, you fall on a banana peel and land on a map of India. Immediately you say to the Lord, thank you for that clear leading. I understand India it is. Instead, what the book does, great little book, is it argues that everything that we need to know about the will of God is clearly revealed on the pages of the word of God. So if you want to know the will of God, get into the word of God, because when you survey the scriptures, you're going to see what God's will is for your life. If you were to, to look at all the Bible passages that talk about what God's will is, essentially you'll, you can narrow it down um, into a handful of categories. And this is essentially what uh, MacArthur did in the book. So if you're searching the scriptures, the first thing that you're going to see what God's will is, is God's will is that you're saved. That's the very first thing, right? Second Peter 3.9 says that God's not wishing, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should turn to him in repentance. Okay, so God's will is that you're saved. The second thing God's, God wills then is that you're spirit-filled. You're saved and that you're spirit-filled. And we're going to explore that a bit more in a second, what it means to be filled with the spirit, but it has to do with being so saturated by the things of God, the things of Christ, and so yielded to his control. Okay, so the third thing, God wills then, according to scripture, we have salvation, we have uh, being uh, spirit-filled. The third is your sanctification, right? Your, your long walk of obedience in the same direction. Your, your, your holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, all right? So that's the first three. Then comes your submission, your submission to those in authority over you. These are hard words for us. Because right, listen what the Apostle Peter wrote. He said, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for such is the will of God. So salvation, spirit-filled, sanctification, submission. And then finally, Scripture talks about uh, Christian suffering, um, as, as the will, as a, often a factor for discerning God's will. Because when we're in step with God, that means we're going to be out of step with the world. And when we're out of step with the world, chances are we're going to be criticized. So we know from Scripture, then, that God's will is that you're saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffering. Now, once you've determined that you're in God's will in those areas, and when you're faced with a decision, here's the really simple answer do what you want at that point. Because ultimately, if you're doing all of those things, your wants and desires are God's wants and desires. I love the way MacArthur puts it. He says, if those five elements of God's will are operating in your life, who is running your wants? God is. The psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. God does not say he will fulfill all the desires there. If you're living a godly life, he will give you the right desires. So when we ask ourselves, am I pursuing everything I want or whatever God wills, we can know the answer because God's will is laid out clearly in his word. It's, it's his will that you're saved. 
It's his will that you're steeped in holy scripture and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. It's his will that you're living a holy life. It's his will that you're submitting to the right authority. It's his will that you're prepared to suffer for doing right for the sake of Christ. And if all those are in place, it's a good bet that your desires are going to be attuned to God. So we're to keep watch on the way in which we walk. We ask ourselves, am I reflecting the ways of the world or the wisdom of God? Am I pursuing everything I want or whatever God wills? And here's the third question. Am I being controlled by sin or by God's spirit? Am I being controlled by sin or by God's spirit? Do I live my days in dependence upon the indwelling Holy Spirit, trusting him and trusting his resources for all of my life? Or do I live my life as a practical atheist, forgetting, even neglecting the reality that, uh, that we're a new creation in Christ and that God's taken up residence inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit? This is what Ephesians 5.18 says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So here's the thing about the Christian life. We know this. As long as we are on this earth, there are always going to be external influences that are going to attempt to control our lives, to dictate our lives, whether it's things like drugs, alcohol, retail therapy, pornography, anger. It could be a list could go on and on. But, but keeping watch, though, on our walk means that we'll pay attention to the things that we're allowing to influence us, to control us. So Paul is saying here, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk because the same way that alcohol controls and influences you, the same way it influences the way you move, the way you talk, the way you the walk, the way, the way you look, the, your decisions, followers of Christ should be indwelled, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, should be filled with the Spirit to the extent that when the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you look, the way you move is clearly evidence of you being under the influence, not of alcohol or anything else, but under the influence of the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that there's such a thing as getting drunk in the Spirit. I have been, I grew up in some churches that were like that. That's not what Paul is saying here. See, for every moment that we're under the influence of something other than Jesus, what it means is that we're not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And, and literally what this reads is, uh, be continually filled. Be, be filling with the Spirit. So it's passive. It's not something we do, but yet it's a command. Because it's a passive action. We allow the Spirit to do His work in and through us. It requires our permission, our surrender, our, our yielding. So as a follower of Christ, you're indwelled. By the Holy Spirit, that's a fact. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit is a different thing. That means that you've forfeited the, the captain's chair of the command center of your soul and that you've given God total control. You live your Christian life in complete and total dependence on Christ. Being filled doesn't mean getting more of the Spirit because you already have uh, all of the Spirit. What it means is the Spirit is getting more of you. So that's being filled with the Spirit means. Just as a, as a drunk person needs to keep putting the bottle to his lips to maintain 
that effect. So we need to continually invite the Spirit's work in our lives, yielding control to him. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor and a physician, and he wrote about these two states, um, the two states that he would call drunkenness and then the Spirit's fullness. And here's what he says. He says, wine, alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant, it's a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol, and you'll find always that it's classified among the depressants. It's not a stimulant. Further, it depresses first and foremost the highest centers of all in the brain. They control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest. What the Holy Spirit does, however, is the exact opposite. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under the stimulants, for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates our every faculty, the mind, the intellect, the heart, and the will. See, what this means then, church, for us, is that instead of having our minds depressed, or our our senses numbed by the effects of alcohol, by the effects of any of the things of the world. Let's have our minds invigorated and our our senses stimulated by the effects of the spirit of of Christ and and the Holy Spirit and, and the indwelling Christ and all of the things of God. So we ask ourselves, am I reflecting the ways of the world or the wisdom of God? Am I pursuing everything I want or whatever it is that God wills? Am I being controlled by my sin or by God's spirit? And then here's our fourth question. Am I living in spiritual confinement or in selfless community? Am I living in spiritual confinement or in selfless community? Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul is saying here, when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're living in dependence on God, some of the results is going to be your commitment to live and grow in selfless community. You're going to have a desire to fellowship with others. You're going to overflow with a lifestyle of worship. You're going to have an attitude of gratitude, and you're going to put others first before yourself. So notice Paul says here, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So here he's talking uh, about fellowship, right? Communicating the scriptures, to one another and edifying each other, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Then he says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So before he was talking about fellowship, now he's talking about public worship, right? That commitment to the assembly of the saints as we gather on, on Sunday mornings to celebrate God's mighty deeds and to lift up the magnificence of Christ. And he says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we had fellowship, we had worship, now we have gratitude. Instead of always complaining or or constantly grumbling, whether it's about the economy, about politics, about how bad things are, about the housing market, whatever it is, 
Paul's telling us that the spirit-filled believer is full not of complaining, but of thanksgiving, of gratitude. And then he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So fellowship, worship, gratitude, and submission. Putting others first. Right? It means that you, you can't claim to be living a spirit-filled life um, and at the same time be aggressive or a jerk or self-assertive and brash. Instead, the, what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit energizes us in humility. Right? Those who are truly filled with the Spirit are going to demonstrate a meekness and, and, and a gentleness, the kind that Christ demonstrated. It'll be one of their most evident characteristics as they submit to one another. And see, this last part of the passage where it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, it really highlights the fact that we don't live our Christian lives in isolation. We don't live our Christian lives separated, disconnected from one another. We, and that's so hard for us to get because that's how the world lives, right? That's how naturally we, we want to, to live isolated from people. But, but that's not a thing for Christians, right? We don't walk in, in spiritual seclusion, uh, keeping an arm length for, from anybody and, and forming a habit of worshiping from the comfort of our own sofas. The Christian journey is meant to be shared. So take a moment and look around the room. Look around the room. Look at the people around you, your brothers and sisters. These are the ones that God has called you to walk with. And Paul's charge to you this morning, then, is to keep watch on the way you walk. And if you haven't been walking very, very good, or if you've been stumbling a lot, maybe it's because you haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to your walk. Maybe the Lord is just calling you to do that this morning. In a world of so much distraction and so much temptation, it's easy to stumble. In the midst of so much busyness and so much self-centeredness and darkness, it's easy to, to trip up. So maybe it's time to ask those four questions that Paul raised in this text. Am I reflecting the ways of the world or the wisdom of God? Am I pursuing everything I want or am I pursuing whatever it is that God wills? Am I being controlled by my sin or am I being controlled by God's spirit? Am I living in spiritual confinement or am I living in selfless community? And Paul says, keep watch on the way you walk. See, as I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about an article I read recently and it talks about some of the, the traps, uh, the, the, the most common traps of our society. Um, and I, it was, it was really fitting article because those two traps are really two subtle things that will trip us up and, and make us stumble um, when we're trying to keep watch on our walk. Um, and those traps are the trap of comfort culture is one. The other is the, the trap of uh, what is called hustle ideology. There's this article called um, How Comfort Culture and Hustle Ideology Fill the Meaning Gap. And it, it basically, the article is about how God's absence um, in, in the lives of so many people has to be filled by some presence, right? And, and there, there are always uh, candidates vying to fill that void. 
And then he says in the article, we've noticed two maps of meaning that have grabbed the hearts of many. The two that I mentioned, comfort culture and hustle ideology. In one sense, they're opposites, but in another, they're fraternal twins. They're different features, but they have the same parents. And then he defines what he means by some of this. So he says, by comfort culture, we mean Netflix binging, online gaming, hours of Candy Crush, scrolling Instagram reels, fantasy sports, self-indulgent Amazon sprees, foodie culture addiction, all comfy couch consolations to fill the meaning gap. It's the mindset of working merely to make play possible. So that's how he talks about the comfort culture. And then he defines what he means as uh, what we would call the opposite extreme, the, the hyper production uh, lifestyle of trying to optimize self. Um, and that could be just as erroneous and disappointing. So this is the hustle ideology. That's the other side. And he says this. He says, if you doubt the prevalence of hustle and grind ideology in today's world, consider how many people listen to the Joe Rogan experience. The show has over 13 million subscribers and billions of views. And in every episode, there's a strong thread that runs through the show about working hard, challenging yourself, never giving up and grinding until you win. And he says, by hustle and grind ideology, we don't simply mean hardworking lifestyles. Rather, it's the ideology of pursuing a future version of the self, tougher, harder, more successful, more complete through relentless self-improvement. He says it's idolatry of the optimized self. See, but comfort culture is idolatry. Hustle ideology is idolatry, and all these things are, are simply consolation prizes in a world that's seeking to find meaning apart from God. So we really need to be careful about the way we're walking. Because if we're not following God, it ends in meaninglessness. So my challenge to you this week is think about those four questions and ask somebody close to you those questions about yourself. Have them ask, answer that question for yourself. Do I reflect the ways of the world or do I reflect the wisdom of God and ask those questions And if you need to go to God for grace, it's all there. Because trust me, this is just as convicting for me. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your never-ending, unfailing mercies. Lord, we praise, try um, living life on this earth apart from you, Lord, but that you've given us every resource that we need to walk confidently in this life, to be an ambassador, pointing people to the good news of the gospel. Lord, help us right now. If there's any way that our lives are more of a reflection of the world, convict us and change us. If we're being controlled by sin and we're not being filled with the Holy Spirit, Lord, convict us, forgive us, thank you for your grace.
Lord, show us what it means to lock arms with one another in fellowship and intentional community. Lord, not in isolation, but grasping hand in hand with the brother and sister next to us. Living our lives with purpose and meaning, ultimate purpose, ultimate meaning, things that have an eternal impact as we point others, those who are lost and dying, as we point them to the hope that is theirs in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us to live out all of the realities of the gospel. Lord, that we would not try to live the Christian lives in our own strength, that we would remember that the only one to have ever lived the Christian life was Jesus, and that he wants to live it through us. So we surrender our control to you. Have your way, Lord, and enable us to keep watch on the way we walk. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.